boy. Episode 105. My shirt is off. My house is hot. I'm in a deep sweat. Trying to paint the picture for you. Oh, it's not a pretty picture, but I'll paint it. We do not have air conditioning. We have 1.5 fans. One of them is kind of broken. So I guess we have one fan. And it's not on me right now. And my brain is melting. Because all I do is zoom and complain, and then I zoom again, and then I complain again, and then I meditate and remind myself, it could be worse. It could be worse. But come on with these wildfires. Come on with this hot weather. Come on with the pandemic, right? Something's got to give. Ooh, hold on, hold on. I just caught myself. That's complaining. And now backpedal, 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 backpedal. It could be worse. Don't cling to the negativity. I'm telling myself right now, I'm telling myself, don't cling to the negativity. Embrace the world as is. Release yourself from suffering. Look at this. I'm just churning out the mantras for you. You should have episode 105 on loop, especially because I got my man Nick Contouriotis joining the show. Who is Nick Contouriotis? Nico, to a lot of his friends. He is a firefighter. He is a former army captain. He is a successful game show contestant. He's an interesting fella, and I like talking to interesting people. I like it. I think most people do. So what inspired me to get Nick on the podcast? I was on Facebook last month, and I saw this post from him. I'm just going to read it straight up. Nick Contouriotis, July 14th. He posted, 12 days ago, I left work sick with COVID-19. Myself and five other firemen who were either on the same crew or had just worked closely with one another, all got it. We had the proper PPE correctly worn when treating the several COVID-positive patients that had called upon us for help over the last few days leading up to getting sick. This is just a quick reminder that if you are sick, please do not call 911 and unnecessarily expose your local first responders unless you are having an emergency. Most symptoms of this virus can be managed at home with over-the-counter medications. If you are having difficulty breathing or other serious complications, then yes, that constitutes an emergency and do call 911. Thank you. Now, the real reason for this post, the beautiful woman in these photos, his wife, Cassie, when I called to tell her I was being sent home with COVID, she did not hesitate for an instant to tell me to rest, heal, and not to worry about her and the girls. I am incredibly fortunate to have a place to quarantine, thanks mom and dad, and not expose my pregnant wife and two toddlers to the virus but even more incredibly fortunate to have her as the rock of our family, the most amazing partner and soulmate I could dream of. Okay, wow. So interestingly, before I read this, I thought to myself, how odd that I don't know anybody who has ever contracted COVID-19. I read about it every day and how it's spreading and spreading and spreading, but then I thought, I don't have any friends or family that have COVID-19. And then I read Nick's post and I said, okay, not yet, and yes, now I do. One of my friends has covid And I figured I wanted to hear more. I mean, that's a good Facebook post, but I only had about 30 follow-up questions. So I wanted to get him. He said yes. He was traveling with his family from the Bay Area to San Diego. So he stopped for a moment and gave me some time, some of his precious time, to discuss his experience in the military, his experience as a firefighter, and of course, as a game show contestant on a show called The Wall which is produced by LeBron James, The Wall, where he won a lot of money. So as I sit here sweating into a microphone, feeling heat stroke and smelling wildfires come through my windows, there's really no better guest 
to have on the Here We Go podcast. It's episode 105, and here is my conversation with the great Nick Contoriotis. I should grab a drink, too. <laughs> All right, so I got yeah. Nick Contoriotis, a former Army captain. Although, when I say former Army captain, it's kind of something you are for life, right? It's not like formerly of the yeah. military. You're a military guy. So it's not part of my title. Um, if I had retired, you know, then I could throw captain retired at the end of it uh-huh. but uh you're not retired no i didn't retire i just i just discharged you know time was up so did the old honorable discharge and got out we're still young men but when you think about when firefighters retire when do firefighters retire on the early side right no generally firefighters last a long time because it is a fairly low impact profession um considering i mean police officers they usually hit 20 and they're done and i can't blame them because the amount of stuff they have to put up with day in day out Mm -hmm. firefighters i mean we're still the nice guys so people are still very kind to us and drop food off at the fire station and you know want their kids to come say hi and take pictures with us and stuff when we're out and about so we usually stick around at least 25 years and then upwards of we've we've had guys that have been on the department 34 35 years and retire um some have made it up to 40 years it sounds like you're almost describing a low stress environment compared to cops and i know like you're saying police work could be more stressful but when i think of firefighters especially right now nick the sky is smoky above me in santa fe right now it seems high stress i mean it seems like a thrilling job that could actually age you quite a bit. It it's one of those things that you um, you definitely plan for the worst and hope for the best. And when those times come that are very stressful or very traumatic, uh, hopefully you've prepared enough to maintain a level head through it and not really let it affect you too much mm-hmm. in the long run. But uh, there's a general consensus that when firefighters retire, their lifespan is like five years. Why? Why? And and I I think that uh, so the the number one killer of firefighters is heart disease and cancer is creeping up on that too. And so um, I think with the heart disease thing, it's not that guys are necessarily unhealthy, but I attribute it to the calls at night or even throughout the day just. You're, you're sitting around lounging or sleeping or you're in the middle of a different task and then all of a sudden the, the tones go off, the lights go on, and you go from your steady baseline heart rate to over 100 beats a minute Holy in, shit. in a matter of a second and you're running out to the truck to get ready. So in, if that happens you know, once a day, it's not a big deal, but if you're doing that multiple times a day or multiple times at night, that takes a toll on your heart, and so um, they've tried to they've tried to come up with some different countermeasures for it. We have soft tones that generally get louder, and the lighting isn't quite as intense anymore. They use red lights in the bedroom and stuff, so it's not this bright thing that wakes you up. But it's still you're gonna jump out of bed. Yeah, that's not a it's desk like someone- job. That that's yeah. a little more extreme than many many jobs. Do you have the ability to compartmentalize? Like when you come home and see your wife and kids, are you able to leave work at the station, or could some of this still fester within your mind constantly? I think I 
I think I do. I think I have a pretty good uh, capacity to kind of separate work and my home life. But what really takes a toll is lack of sleep. And that's where I know I, I kind of take it out on, you know, casting the girls when I come home from work. If I haven't slept at all, then I'm, you know, I have a short fuse and I, I don't really let things, you know, slide that I normally would. You know, if the girls are just bickering back and forth, I might be a, a more adept to, like, you know, step in or, or be more loud about getting them to stop versus yeah. just letting it kind of go and, and solve itself. I got you. Well, busy at work, busy at home with two girls oh, yeah. and another on the way. It's not going to get quieter. From a man, Nick Contoriotis. You know, I was on Facebook. I'm trying to purge the other social media platforms. I'm still on Facebook. And that's when I saw your post. And it had oh, yeah. so much in it. It was not just about COVID-19, which you caught. And I want to hear about your experience. But it was about having a pregnant wife and just how you had your family there to quarantine and an understanding partner in life. And it's almost like I learned a lot about you because we've been out of touch. You know, we go way back. But yeah. I was thinking, I got to get Nick on the podcast to tell this story because he is certainly my only friend that has caught COVID. So let's start right there. I've heard different experiences. I've heard some people say it wrecks you. It's debilitating. And other people say it was just like the common cold. How did it hit you? What, what did it manifest itself as it was not terrible i'll start off with that um i i was sick in late february early march and assumed that it was covid because i just felt like crap and i hadn't been that sick in a long time and it, i was just run down and, and coughing and lasted seven to ten days but i got uh antibody testing done two separate times after that and they both came back negative and so i figured i guess it wasn't covid but uh this time i knew for sure that it was because i had the loss of uh taste and smell symptom mm. and i was still waiting on my results but when that happened i was like all right this is definitely going to be it um so anyway when i first got it i was at work it was the so we worked 48 hour shifts and it was the second night I felt fine, went to sleep, woke up an hour or two later with a headache and night sweats and then chills and sweats and chills and sweats. And so I kept checking my temperature and it kept coming back 98, but I was using one of the contactless ones, you know, just a little IR scanner deal. Anyhow, I finally went out and grabbed a tympanic one off the truck to check my temperature in my ear and it came back 101. So I was like, all right, well, based on everything that's going on, we had our COVID protocols already established. So when woke my captain up and said, hey, this is what's going on. He's like, okay, well, let's uh, get you home and you know, we'll take care of everything. So I left that morning, went by the house just to have Cassie hand me some stuff. And then I was fortunate enough to go over to my parents' house where no one was and didn't get to see the girls or anything. And so I went over there and just... Uh, made myself comfortable. And the only symptoms I had at first were a headache and that fever. And so took Tylenol, took Motrin, took away my symptoms almost completely. So I felt perfectly fine. Like I could do yard work and other things, which I started to do. Wow. And then it would come back and I'd feel a little crummy and take another dose that I needed and was right as rain again. But after the second day, 
the fever was gone, but then I started getting body aches and fatigue, and then I lost my sense of smell and sense of taste. How many total so, days were you out of commission? Um, it was only about – it was less than a week. So I'd say the fatigue and the body aches lasted five days, and that was the worst symptoms that I had. I didn't have any respiratory issues. I didn't have a cough. So it was generally mild, I would say. I've definitely had worse colds in the past. Like I said, in February, March, that was pretty rough. And I've, I've felt worse than I did with COVID. So I guess I'm fortunate in that regard. But just with this being covered in the news so drastically every day, did you ever have a moment of fear that this could escalate? Were you ever caught up into, holy shit, I have COVID-19? Or did you keep it level-headed? I think for the most part, I kept it level-headed. But there's always that thought in the back of your mind, oh, I could be that one person. I could mm-hmm. be that statistic. Mm-hmm. Because the media likes to focus on the outliers. They don't focus on the millions upon millions of people that have Get those clicks, baby. Better. Get those clicks. <laughs> exactly. So I'm thinking, oh, great. I'm, you know, I, I could be that 37-year-old fit guy with no prior medical history that ends up in the hospital on a ventilator and dies from it. And that was just in the back of my mind, like, you know, that would really suck. But yeah. <laughs> everyone's got to die from something, I guess. Yeah, you probably possess that mentality always. <laughs> I mean, this is a guy who was a former <laughs> Army captain and now a firefighter. So, like I said, these are not desk jobs. Do you even consider yourself a thrill seeker? Like, would you say you're drawn to action or you never even looked at it that way? It's just who you are. I think it's just who I am. But I would also say that thrill-seeking has something to do with it, too, because I enjoy the adrenaline rush. The you know, I've, I've tried other things. I've tried skydiving, hang gliding, bungee jumping. Have you really done all that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Holy all the moly. adrenaline sports. And I, I have a blast. I mean, they're all fun, but nothing really compares to your life actually being in jeopardy. So whether you're being shot at or you're in a house fire or something along those lines, um, it's definitely a different feeling. I don't even think I'd go in a hot air balloon, let alone hang glide. But tell me, does hang, <laughs> I've always looked at hang gliding and said, I would love, love to try. Does it feel like you're flying? Did you do it in La Jolla over the cliffs? It, out of, out of all of the, the high risk things that I've done, all the uh, sports that is, I found hang gliding was my most favorite. That's awesome. Definitely number one. So with hang gliding, it's just this peaceful, steady thing where you're soaring through the sky. It is completely quiet. There's no wind rushing by your ears like when you're skydiving. And then you can dip down and hit banks. And and that's when you get the stomach you know, the pit of your stomach moving around, you get that roller coaster feeling, and then you can level out and start gliding again, and you're soaring literally with the birds. Wow. So it's it's really cool. It's a really neat sport. Dude, I would love to. I actually mean that. Some of the others I'm just so obviously not going to do, but hang gliding, <laughs> I'll throw that on the old bucket list. While we're you should still, try it. I, I would love to, honestly. Um, while we're still talking about, you know, the firefighter who caught COVID, you were wearing a mask. Like you said, I had all the proper... Yeah. equipment on so 
you know, this is also a PSA of, hey, folks, don't call the fire department. That's basically part of your post. <laughs> if you're just having a bit of a fever, that's not what we're here for. If you have a legitimate health issue, I get it. But you were saying the phone was just ringing off the hook from people who probably shouldn't have been calling. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. You know, people look to the 911 service when they're having an issue, whether it's a very serious issue or a more minor one, they just can't solve themselves. Then the next course of action is they will contact 911 to have their problem solved for them. And when it comes to COVID, it's such a contagious thing that, and it, you know, is on all the surfaces in your house and things like that. And so when you're bringing people into your house that don't necessarily need to be there, you're just putting more people at risk. You're exposing more people. And it's the same with any illness. You don't want to expose more people than necessary. So initially when COVID hit the U S people were scared to call 911. They, the, it was silent around the fire stations and people didn't want to go to the hospital. They assumed oh, that wow. if they got to the hospital, they would catch the virus and they would die. And so uh, there was like two weeks where it was just very minimal calls. It was the car accidents and broken arms and fires and stuff. It wasn't the normal sick people that we, we usually get. And then things started to kind of get back to normal and people were calling for what they usually do. And then the, the calls for the ill people started to skyrocket. And then we started asking prior to getting there, you know, where have you been exposed to anyone that has COVID? Have you tested yourself? You know, get, get a little baseline of information to go off of before we get there. And so we have right off the bat, we, our city, our department put protocols in place where we would only send the minimum amount, amount of people we needed to, to go in and handle the call. And if it was more serious then we'd send everyone in. So we started off sending two guys in fully dressed with, gowns and masks and everything and they would make patient contact and if they needed assistance then the rest of us would go in and help if not and they could handle it then they would handle the situation they'd bring the patient out and um, we'd get them transported over to the hospital and they'd maintain contact the whole time over to the hospital but the problem was people weren't telling us whether they had covid or if they had been exposed or they just assumed that they didn't damn and they still wanted us to come over and check them out and so we're in there and you got four firefighters in there doing their assessment and we still wear masks and we still protect ourselves, but, but it's, it's exposing more people than was necessary. And when I ended up getting it, um, it was, was on an instance where we, we were running on COVID positive patients by this point, they had been tested, they'd come back positive. And, uh, it was just one of those things, you know, we took all the precautions we could and, still ended up getting sick. And like I had said on that post, there was there was five of us between the two fire stations next to each other that all got it at the same time. And it was all basically from a single patient at some point. That's heavy, man. And you can't just zoom in? I mean, you can't just say, I'm going to zoom in today? <laughs> Are they saying you're really essential? You got to go in? Damn. I haven't been out of my house in six months. So... You tell me what the world looks like right now. <laughs> right? I was joking with Cassie about that, too. Like, yeah, you know, maybe we'll just zoom zoom into a call. <laughs> Someone calls 911, and we'll, we'll pull it up on FaceTime right. or Zoom and check their symptoms that way. You're on the front lines, my friend. Yeah, at this point, I mean, I think a lot of people 
have adapted. You know, it's not so much the panic every day, but it's so demoralizing. You have kids, you can't use the slides or swings or go to the mall or go to a ball game. Just the little things. I hope there's a positive that we'll have a newfound appreciation about the things that we overlooked. I'm trying to stay positive, but there are some days that are so shitty. Are you having shitty days when you think about this pandemic? Oh, of course, especially here. So when it first kicked off, Arizona was the place to be because the weather was perfect. Mm. We could do things outside all day long. And like you said, I have two toddlers. So just getting them out of the house and getting them active is essential to their well-being and making sure that they get enough energy out that they're actually going to sleep at night. But uh, the the first couple months was great. And then things really got stripped around here, everything locked down, and the temperature skyrocketed outside. So we're dealing with the hottest summer on record right now. Oh, my God. In the state of Arizona. And obviously, we're not going to be outside playing when it's 117 degrees. So it's just it's hard to find things to do that are, A, open, and B, you know, indoors for the most part. You got to get creative, huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. You got to find pools or splash pads or something that that will be open for the kids to get some exercise. And this will pass. You'll tell the toddlers, hey, when you were little, here's what was going on. Check out the history books. It's going to be insane. This is one giant unit of history we're living in. I want to... And I think we're fortunate that they, that are yours and my kids are so young right now because yeah. they don't have to really remember it. <laughs> By the time this is all said and done, you know, they'll be older starting school and not have to worry about the in-home schooling and the Zoom classes and all that. See, I agree. I do agree. If your kids are really, really small right now and you don't have to worry about the classroom and missing campus life, but could you imagine going into your senior year of high school if you were told, stay home, look oh into a gosh. computer screen, no high school football, no wrestling, no baseball, no girls, no nothing. Oh. That's that's where I feel the empathy most is for these kids that I'm teaching. Oh, totally. And I just see sad faces on the Zooms. And I'm afraid that it's going to have a negative impact on all young adults you know, in the next couple of years because they're prime high school time where they really develop themselves they find who they are build their character and they're playing sports and making their lifelong friends all of that has been cut short and so the depression rate must be skyrocketing between 16 to 18 year olds no doubt i i have nothing but sympathy for them because it's got to be so terrible i couldn't imagine missing my senior year that's what I'm thinking about. I mean, we could teach them the content, but I'm like, shouldn't we just turn this into therapy? Like, shouldn't we just get some psychologists? Because this is totally depressing. Now, I teach uh-huh. sophomores world history. And if you could picture a 15-year-old boy learning about World War One and World War Two with all the Hollywood movies they've seen, once it comes uh-huh. time to learn about the battles, you know, the historic military battles and conflicts, I have their attention. But what I've noticed is... You could try to tell the stories, but it's really the people like you that have fought in wars, fought in these battles, that can understand it. And that's kind of one thing I wanted to bring up from 12 years ago. Rick Spalty, our good buddy, he sent me the article from the Press Democrat that you were wounded (laughs) when you were trying to rescue an Iraqi soldier. And this is 08, I believe. But I want you to tell that story on this podcast. I want you to capture what happened because I know you won a bronze medal. Is that right? (laughs) 
<laughs> something like that. <laughs> and in the uh, article, I know you shy away you from the word. <laughs> I know you shy away from the <laughs> word hero, but tell the story. <laughs> Try to capture in your words what it's like to be in battle and just how it was to actually get shot. Um, it wasn't fun. No. It hurt. <laughs> All right. Do you want the the full long version or just the condensed? I'll take condensed because my attention span is that of a 15-year-old's as well. But I know <laughs> you don't have to limit any details. So let's go okay. condensed but thorough. All right. I'll, I'll be as thorough and condensed as I possibly can. Um, you were right. It was 2008. Essentially, the U.S. had some sort of an agreement with the Shia Muslims in Iraq that we weren't going to mess with each other because Saddam was a Sunni and his Baathist party was all Sunnis. The ones in power were Sunnis. And so we essentially rolled in there because the Sunnis were being bad guys and they were actually killing the Shia by the thousands, by the tens and hundreds of thousands, testing chemical weapons on them and whatnot. So we were cool with the Sunni or with the Shia for a while, but after five years of being in their country and I can't blame them, but they started getting pretty upset with us being there. So they started firing rockets and, and uh, mortars and things from a somewhat protected Shia area into our secure area, the green zone of Baghdad. The green zone is where all the diplomats, the ambassadors, the generals, all the big wigs would be safe. And uh, so the unit that I was with, got sent in to essentially drive back these jerks that were trying to blow up our bosses. And in the ensuing battles that came, which was the Battle of Sadr City, uh, I was on a patrol. My unit had stopped in front of a, a patrol base where an Iraqi army uh, element was. Myself and our team chief, I was the operations officer of our team, the two of us are out of our vehicle inside the building when all of our vehicles out front in the building start taking fire. And we had some Iraqi army soldiers with us, and one of them had been shot, and several of them were pinned down in front of a vehicle that was still taking heavy fire. Our guys were relatively secure. They were in their Humvees. We had up-armored Humvees at the time, so they were um, protected against small arms fire. So bullets weren't going to go in. My team medic wanted to get out and assess the patient that was shot, and I just radioed to him to stay where he was because their vehicles were still in the line of fire too. So I went ahead and left the security of the building that I was in, hopped down off this ledge, ran over, and was able to get to the pinned-down Iraqis and the one that was shot. And so did a quick assessment, found out that uh, shot through the leg, but bleeding controlled, so... We got him up, headed back into the building, and in the process, we started taking fire, too, and I was shot through the arm. And so when that happened, the other Iraqi uh, army guys took the injured one inside. I got knocked over outside, and uh, so I was able to jump up and run and dive into an open doorway. Felt the blood pouring off my hand, so grabbed my tourniquet, threw it on, wrenched it down, was able to get the bleeding somewhat controlled, and then um, one of those soldiers came back and grabbed my vest, dragged me farther into the building. Then I was able to actually uh, relay back to my guys what had happened. So at the time, we stayed in contact for another 10 or 15 minutes or so until another U.S. 
infantry platoon was able to come and assist us and they started returning fire and were able to get out of there and get to a, a safer location to get medevaced out. But um, it was a little chaotic and for my efforts to uh, remain calm enough and in command to return fire and continue to engage the enemy who was firing at us from multiple different elevated positions. Um, I was, uh, how did you word it? I, I won the bronze medal. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just going with the one article I read, but a bronze medal of valor. And he yeah, is folks, I was, I was a award- hero. <laughs> I was awarded the, the bronze star for valor. Okay. And, uh, I also ended up with a enemy marksmanship badge, AKA the purple heart. So you apply your own tourniquet, but how soon does that bullet come out of your arm? It went through and through. Oh, so it, it, it shot straight through my bicep, came out my tricep, and it broke my humerus in the process. Well, this is a FaceTime call, so let me see. Even though the listeners won't be able to see anything, <laughs> let me see this. So uh, I don't even know if you'll be able to see. The little guy right there is where it went in on the mm. front. Mm-hmm, I see it. And then uh, the little bit bigger one back there, I don't know if you can really see it with the shadow. but Of course I can. That's, that's where it came out. Well, you're still ripped, first of all. I'd like to announce that. Oh. Holy shit. Um, my man, wearing a tank top, having a Woodford Reserve backward hat. It's like I saw you yesterday. You look the exact same, even though we're in our late 30s now. Well, we're laughing, and you're just telling the story kind of nonchalant, but did this change your life? Being shot in battle, having to come home. I know you say it's a little chaotic. To me, it sounds beyond chaotic. Did this change yeah. your life? Did it change your mindset? Any PTSD? Like, what did you have to deal with emotionally when this happens? No, the thing that hit me the hardest was I got home and the way that I was routed out of Iraq, I had to go back to recover because of the broken arm. Um, other, otherwise, I probably would have been able to stay there. But they had to send me back because they figured that the recovery time for the broken humerus was going to be several months. So I get sent from the uh, combat hospital in Baghdad to another hospital in Iraq, back to Germany, because that's where we send all our wounded pretty much. And from Germany was flown back to the States. By the time I got back to the States, four days had passed. And I get an email, or I finally am able to log on, check my email. And I get an email from uh, one of my best friends on on the team I was on over there saying to call him and obviously that's not a good thing so i give him a call come to find that three days after i was shot my team was out on patrol again and i was always the lead truck i always as the operations officer for our team i always chose the route took the lead and was responsible for anything that happened while we're on patrol and i let my team chief or you know the number one deal with all the political stuff. Mm -hmm. So he's the one that dealt with the, the commanders and things like that. And I just got to do what was necessary to keep us alive. Um, anyway, he apparently had, uh, taken lead on a patrol and they got hit. And I'm not saying it's anyone's fault. I could have been the one in the truck or maybe I could have seen the explosive beforehand, but um, obviously we'll never know the answer to that. But his truck was hit and he was killed. Oh my god! And the uh, all the other 
soldiers in the truck were were badly injured as well. Um, one of our guys lost both of his legs. Uh, our interpreter lost one leg and almost all the fingers on his hand. And the driver uh, had several other internal injuries. So it was a pretty bad ordeal there. And I, I just, when he told me that, that was the hardest thing for me because I wasn't there. And so I don't know if I could have made a difference. And I think that is what haunts me the most. And so I, I, I know it was out of my control at that point because I, I couldn't say, no, you're not sending me home. I'm going to put a cast on myself and continue to you know, go on patrols. Uh, that would have been impossible. So I, I just took that the hardest, I think. So I recovered as quickly as I could and uh, was able to have someone that wasn't necessarily my doctor cut my cast off a couple months early. <laughs> and uh, they started me on um, physical therapy, mm-hmm. and that lasted one day. And I told the lieutenant, who was the physical therapist, to sign off the rest of my paperwork. Oh, my God. And I uh, was able to go back and, and rejoin my team. So I made it. I was shot on uh, April uh, 5th and was able to get back on July 3rd. So just under three months, I was able to get back over there and finish the deployment. Well, that's what we call an expedited recovery. You sound to be in control of this recovery a little bit. You know, these yeah. stories these stories create the fabric of your character, your life. You must get so close with these people. Even when you tell this story, I imagine these people are just family, oh. where you could conjure up the images of what it was like to be such a tight-knit group. Definitely, definitely. And I didn't really explain what I was doing over there, because I was trying to keep condensed. But uh, we were on a military transition team, is what they called it. And essentially, they took some officers and some senior enlisted guys and put them together to train the Iraqi army. And we had some other junior enlisted guys who are our um, gunners and medic, or, uh, sorry, drivers. But other than that, it was all pretty senior guys. And they figured that we would be able to embed with the Iraqis and get them to the level they needed to be to secure their own country so we could pull out eventually so we lived with them but more than that it was our tight-knit group of about 15 guys that from day one were just thrown together as a hodgepodge none of us knew each other beforehand and we lived together you know ate together cooked together and went through hell together so it was uh it was a very very interesting experience and one that i will never forget that's for sure no God, I feel so shallow transitioning to the game show you were on now. I should have had that question up front. And Nick, you were on the hit show The Wall on NBC. But I know, look, I want to stay in touch with you and actually hear some more stories off the air. But let me just ask you, and these questions are going to be so shallow. But first of all, I watched it. What was it about two years ago? It, It was, shoot, what was it? It was three years ago. Okay. Oh, no, it aired two years ago. So we filmed it. Clay, uh, my oldest, she's three and a half now, and she was only, I think she was like four months old when we filmed it, and that was uh, that was huge for us because we hadn't really left her alone. Well, at least my wife hadn't left her alone before, and she had to to go for the show. But they didn't air it for another like eight or nine months. Do they swear you to so secrecy? Was, like you can't tell people oh, the yeah, results? Yeah. 
oh no, you sign you sign the non-disclosures, and if you release anything that could compromise the integrity of the episode, then the studios can turn around and sue you. So we we were very quiet. Yeah, you kept it tight-lipped. Well, it was good. You guys yeah. were awesome. I remember, to bring up Rick once again, he texted me, put on NBC right now. I was like, no shit. He goes by Nico. Okay, he's now Nico. And it's a big production. The wall is not like Jeopardy. You know, the wall is like big bells and whistles and bright lights. Oh, yeah. And it's a trivia show. Well, but it's an hour-long episode. Yeah. With just one, or, or one team, you know, one, two contestants on for an hour. So they really put a lot into it. It was great. And you know what was great is you came away a winner. A good day on Jeopardy, you might win about $30,000. Can you share with me right now? I know it's a tacky question, but how much did you come away with from that one episode? Well, on the episode, we won $740,000. <laughs> how do you now, not laugh when you say that? We away with $740,000 because the government has to take their slice. Well, we did well. We did. Really oh, you well. don't want to tell me because that's what I'm asking. I know I already Googled <laughs> the seven hundred forty thousand dollars, but I was starting to wonder what did Nick bring home? This is an uncensored um, podcast, and you could say I'd rather not answer. I'll give you the out. No, I, so it's not like someone can come take it from me because it's very much already spent. <laughs> but uh, we 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 paid the government uh, over three hundred thousand dollars, and the rest we got to keep. But still, right? Still. Yeah. That is yeah. such a chunk huge, huge. of change. Yeah. Holy shit. No, congrats. Actually, congrats on <laughs> everything. And it was so, thank you. It was so fortunate. And, you know, Andrew Glassman is the, the creator of the show and just a fantastic guy. And so um, we, we became friends after the fact, just, you know, just getting to know him a little bit more. And just such a down to earth nice person who wanted to do something nice for other people and every other game show out there you you just sign up and sometimes you get lucky and you know the lottery falls on your name and you get to go on the show this particular show focuses on people who have done something Mm -hmm. or have contributed to society in a positive way and hopefully they can benefit from the show and so we definitely did we were very fortunate yeah, your personality came out. You were not like a robotic contestant. Uh, we we learned about dude. you and your family. Demetrius was there, right, in the studio audience with your dad? Yeah, yeah. That was Demetrius so cool. My dad, they were both there. They flew them out to be our uh, our family members in the audience, and they had a blast too. But That was rad. I can't tell you if – I've seen the episode two times, and that's probably – the the max i'll ever watch it because i feel so weird watching it and just <laughs> reflecting on myself and i feel like i was just a clown out there but <laughs> it's the good kind of weird that's, that's well it was weird yeah, it's weird for everyone who knows you and you but it's the good kind of weird <laughs> it's the lucrative kind of weird i should mention right <laughs> all right from hand gliding to covid to firefighting to military uh, battles to the wall Buddy, they're going to make a movie about you yeah. one day. You're too humble to know that. But I'm going to start wondering who no we should cast. Way. Who we should cast to play Nico. Uh, Dwayne Johnson, definitely. Of course. Of course. I love it. Whenever I look at him, I, I think of Chris. Yes. Chris Cantorio. Yes, of he, course. I do too. His mannerisms and his facial features, I don't know. Just, everything just reminds me of Chris. Even the voice. But, even the voice and the sideburns yeah, that Chris totally. used to have. And probably some of the tattoos match up as well. 
Nick, I'm so stoked you did this podcast, man. I appreciate it. It's so good to see you. And yeah, now well, I, we got to stay in touch. Definitely, definitely. I mean, I didn't get to ask you any questions. All you're doing is asking me questions. Start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners already know about my bullshit that I bore them with all the time. <laughs> oh, man. We'll catch up off the well, air, too, I, this week. Yeah, definitely. And we've been texting back and forth, and between yours and uh, my kiddos, it's almost impossible to find a few minutes to set aside to actually have a conversation. So text seems to work the best because you right. can respond whenever you get a minute. Right. Well, cheers. I know you got that air conditioning going. Um, oh, yeah. Stay healthy. Stay happy. Give my best to your whole fam. The extended and the Will nuclear. Do. All right, buddy. Will do. Love you, man. Love you. Thank you. All right. There's Nick. Hell of a guy. Hell of a guy. Great family as well. Good friends with a bunch of his cousins, including one of his cousins I'm going to call out right now, Mitch. Mitch. And if you're listening right now and wondering, why should I care about Mitch? Then I'm telling you straight up, you need to change your attitude. Why are you so hostile when I bring up Mitch? I just want to bring up Mitch, okay? Yeah, now relax a little bit, okay? So Mitch is a good dude. I've known him since about fourth grade and we've been good friends. And he has two daughters and he's a physical therapist and he has a wife and he has a nice happy life up there in Sacramento, California. That's not why I'm bringing him up. I'm bringing Mitch up because I'm reading his book. Yeah, it's not published, but he gave me the rough manuscript and he gave it to me in a way that I could put it on my Kindle. So I'm about 20% into this manuscript and it's not just good, it's too good. So the biggest compliment I could give him is, I don't really believe you wrote this. It's kind of a mean compliment. But I didn't really know his mind was capable of telling these kind of stories. He's painting a beautiful picture, a beautiful dystopian picture based on a concept that I can't totally grasp. I actually had to text him and said, what's going on? Explain this book a little bit. And he has stepped away from the book. It's probably been seven years since he even looked at the manuscript. So I had to jog his memory. All right, I'm reading about Foster and Willow and the grid and time. Tell me more because it's actually confusing. It's complicated for someone like me that never reads any sci-fi. So he's explaining it. And I realized this guy is a genius. Sometimes you know your friends and sometimes you don't know your friends. But Mitch, he has the authentic qualities of a real author, but he really doesn't spend time everyday writing it. So I reminded him before you're 50 years old, you got to finish this book. If for no other reason than allowing me to read the full thing, the polished final edition. So I hope one day, one day everybody gets to read this, but you realize something about writing a book. You can, you can, you could just do it. You could start right now. You could start writing a book. You don't need an agent to green light your project. I mean, if you're just doing it for intrinsic value, doing it for yourself, because you like to express yourself and create art, then do it. There are some things like that where you don't have to audition. You don't have to try out. You don't have to pay money. You just get to start. You can be an author. Like I said, you could have a podcast, but I think you know that. So when I wrote my book, I was thinking, all right, this will be fun. Yeah, it's like an individual endeavor. You want to prove something to yourself that you're capable of doing it and you do it. And in the end, you're still yourself. Do I feel like an author? No, of course not. I feel like I wrote a book, but with Mitch, as I read his writing and the way he captures dialogue and paints a picture and captures emotion and tells a story that's just weaving so many other motifs and concepts and theories into it. It's really heavy. It's like a deep book. I'm realizing 
Oh, underneath it all. I mean, he's a physical therapist and I've known him forever. And we've had a ton of fun partying throughout the years. Good talks, good laughs. I didn't know this quality of his. It's amazing. Discovering something about the people that you're very close to, something new that you never knew about them, that evolution of a friendship or relationship, that's something special. That is, that is. That's why if you have good people in your life and you can grow together, it's going to add a lot of contentment to your existence. I mean that. I'm always trying to discover, where does happiness lie? Where do we find that thing called joy? Where do you capture it? Obviously, it evolves. The things that made me happy 10 years ago, 20 years ago, they're different now. They're different. But finding new qualities of my friends that I'm so impressed with, holy shit. I wish I could just say, and go check out his book now, but I can't say that for another 12 years. But when I say it, you'll know what I meant. You'll know what I meant. And that's one of Nick Contoriotis' cousins. So it all comes full circle. All right, be inspired. If there's something you've been meaning to do, go do it. If it's in the world of art, just go start it. Just go start it. Dip your toe in the water. All right, I appreciate you tuning in for episode 105. It's now in the books. I'll talk to you soon. (laughs) 